out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, very good, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I know, dramatic pause. Anyway, I'm with you for the next hour, though it might feel like days by the end of it. But anyway, this is another interview. You know we love a special guest. Let's cut the chat. Get right down to it. This is uh, with a member of, yes, one time sort of rockabilly band, the Inca Babies, because I spoke to Harry Stafford to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also his new solo album, which is titled gothic urban blues which is now available from all good record shops and probably online as well so there you go but uh, do check it out because it's a bit of a classic we talk about that as well as lots of other things as well including his life in music obviously but anyway after the yes we had a bit of a chat to begin with to um yes that's sort of world of showbiz really isn't it anyway most of it was about getting our hair cut because let's face it this is lockdown britain at the moment but not for long Anyway, that's slightly dated, this interview, but um, lockdown, Monday, all almost seemed like a dream. But this, um, after the conversation about the hair, we then got down to the release of the new album, and uh, yes, Gothic Urban Blues, and, uh, and I was asking Harry what it's like to be releasing an album at a time when you can't go out, play live, meet the public. It must be drastic. Harry, tell us all about it. Uh, it's, it's disappointing because we had about uh, what do we have about eight or nine gigs lined up, and of course they all went. So you you kind of you're you're, you're pushing it from uh, social media and you're pushing it, and well, people will will engage with social media. It's not quite the same. You, you you're sitting at home and you, there's this terrible kind of ennui of having no sense of you're actually doing anything. Whereas if you're actually doing a few gigs, you know, you know, and maybe talking to people and persuading them to buy a record and then having a conversation with an audience, I don't know, it's, it's so much more satisfying. So you're you're doing the social media thing and anything could happen, you know. Yes. And of course, as you know, with social media, it's it's very hit and miss. It's very hit and miss, and it's all gone a bit strange. Twitter is just a hateful place now, which is kind of horrible. Well, that's it. I mean, I, I do promotional stuff and anyone who shows the, the slightest bit of um, uh, negative uh, behaviour when I'm trying to just merely, you know, it's like music. You know, I play, put a bit of music on there. If you don't like it, ignore it. There's no need to actually turn around and say, crap, you know, so they, they are dismissed immediately. But um, it doesn't happen too often. I don't think uh, I attract too many uh, uh, nasty people so far <laughs> no I know this is true I mean it's kind of a minefield actually I know because Pete I did an interview with Pete Perfitas who was just bringing his book out and he just managed to get the sort of the launch night and then about a week later it was all over and I think he just felt quite relieved is it the case that you'll you'll sort of just kind of reschedule everything and say right this is this is the beginning again with that was a little bit of a test run or does it kind of just spoil everything well, it, it just means that those, uh, I mean, I say six months, but it could actually be 12 months, uh, are just uh, kind of not so much wasted, but a missed opportunity. So you have to set it all up again and you almost relaunch it. But then a lot of people will say to you, uh, sorry, we've heard this, blah, blah, blah. What are you, what are you doing by uh, relaunching it? And all you can say is, well, look, you know, um, we were, we were in, 
stasis. We were in, we were stateless. We were, we were in the, in a purgatory before. So yeah. now's our opportunity to actually try and try and actually play the gig, uh, gigs and uh, get it across because, you know, I had the band lined up. I had all sorts of things. It's going to be very exciting and it never happened. So of course, what you do is, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you, you you reschedule everything and hope for the best, you know. Yeah, there was a couple. There was a couple of people in America who spent three years on the album, and obviously this was their. They were still young, but they still had optimism. Optimism. Oh no! And they'd had a whole twelve months because the album isn't going to sell enough to keep them alive, basically. But it's the merchandise, and you know they're going to go through do the whole American gig. You know they'd just about done the maths. You know, get in huge debt, release the album, basically pay the debt off, and it was like I could see this kind of guy's face of, I might be working in Starbucks soon. You know, and and just owing a lot of people favors, and you know, it's just like we just don't know. It was a bit of a difficult one. You could see the poor chap. I mean, he wasn't that young, but he'd sort. You know, he'd been in music for ten years, but he was still younger than me most people but I mean you know it was just like Jesus you spent three years your full-time job you know and yeah well I mean I would say to you know uh, it is going to be a very disappointing year um, I think the meme of uh, of the back to the future is when the, the professor says uh, whatever you do don't go to 2020 is probably the truest meme I've seen uh, <laughs> the, the going, you know. Uh, but no, I mean, the thing is, if he's young, he's fine. You know, you just put it down to experience and say, look, this happened to me. This was a learning curve and I will get on. And also, who's to say, you know, we we, we may have to be used to this kind of uh, disruption. Uh, if, if this is something that uh, we're not prepared for and we don't have an answer to, uh, who's to say we, we won't have this all uh, coming at us uh, next year? Yeah. I really hope not, I honestly. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, I, I feel more sorry for uh, for the Olympians who uh, are hoping to uh, perform in the Olympic Games because I believe you you kind of train for, for, for four years so that you yes. just peak at that exact moment. And, of course, when they tell it, oh, it's not going to happen, Maybe that's that's your gold medal gone. Uh, so musicians maybe have to uh, take uh, so. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, when I was younger, the Olympics was quite a big thing. So we used to watch it or I used to watch it. And it was very exciting. And, you know, when you remember Olga Corbett and then Nadia Comaneci, you know, in those kind of 82, uh, 72 76 period I mean they do have that window for various reasons and their next Olympics from that moment where they were brilliant is like oh you're you're you were just <laughs> you're much you know a bit too older and uh, you have slightly past your your moment moment so yes the Olympics you know must be devastating and especially for swimmers because you just think yeah you're a bit fucked really aren't you you, <laughs> you can't just go that's okay a year's a bit tricky but we can still keep training really hard and just keep the focus keep the focus but it's like Mm, don't know where you're going to go mate you know you can keep cycling and running and doing some weights but you know swimming is just um yeah you've, you've had it really haven't you so um yes you 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 peak the the planets are aligned and you peak at that moment or you aim to peak at the moment and if it doesn't happen then you know you're, you're just going to have to um put it down to incredibly bad luck yeah uh, um, which of course it is to a certain extent 
But just lastly, before we get on to the world of rock and roll, but my partner asked me a question today, which you might answer. She said, so, okay, the Olympics are next year, but what are the one, what are they going to do, the ones that were going to be four years time? Will they have them now in the same, you know, so it'll be three years, or will they shuffle that up back a year? And I thought they would probably stick with the one that they planned and it will just be three years. Just, uh, Oh, I imagine that the, 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 the people who have the Olympics in the next uh, eight years or so have uh, have very, very strict kind of schedules and they're not going to change it. So, yeah, the next Olympics will be as it is always. So it'll be a three year gap, I suppose, the four year. But, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've we've missed out on European championships and there's been no cricket season, all that sort of sports gone if we're talking sport. But, you know, you just have to uh, put it down to um, one of those really classic. It's like, you know, who won the world? Sorry, who won the FA Cup in, in 1944? Nobody, because the world was at war. Yes. Um, uh, so it's one of those things. We just it's a big gap in um, in, in history. You know, there was no Glastonbury. Uh, there was no this. There was no that. Um, but, you know. It's, yes, I think I think if we can sort of vaguely move on, but that's the kind of problem, isn't it? Whether we, yeah, you know, it's that horrible. You catch yourself saying, when we get slightly, hopefully, back to normal, which will all slightly be different, doing slightly different things. But as long as there isn't going to be, actually, we're going to have to cancel next year as well. You think, no, no, because the other thing is, just lastly, we've been so lucky that that this happened when we went into summer, we've had the most brilliant weather, we're all very happy. If we have the second wave or spike and we go into winter, I think um, it's gonna be horrendous. Oh gosh, I, I agree. It'd be, um, uh, not worth thinking about, um, but yes, it is a possibility and we will have to um, be prepared for it. Yes, I know, <laughs> it won't be good. But look, so look, I do a show called the C86 show, which is very exciting and I've been doing it. Yes. Now years um and it's, it's it's good i mean is it possible because i'm always curious apart from my hair um uh yeah your your own musical world because i'm in my mid-50s now so i was born in 64 and um yeah so my my musical awakening apart from listening to a bit of the, the radio which my mum had on when she was in the kitchen and with people like jimmy young and what's the recipe today jimmy on radio two it was kind of the early glam years on top of the pops with the sweet and gary glitter obviously and and alice cooper's schools out so when did you start to sort of go your little ears started to go oh what's that sound i quite like that oh i i think i'm i'm with you um i used to i mean top of the pops is something that is so missed um it was the ultimate kind of yardstick of what was happening in the country and you could literally tell it was almost political it was uh, sexual it was every kind of yardstick that you had going was top of the pops uh from terms of youth culture and yes absolutely the glam uh, the glamorous i remember going around to my granny's house and uh, I used to, I don't know why I used to go there, I think about in, this, in the early 70s, about 70, and we would watch it just so that she could look at me and go, oh dear, 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 <laughs> look at those, uh, I don't know, the boys from the girls, look at them. That, you was, a classic, that was a classic like line, that. you can't tell if they're boys or girls now. No, exactly. And uh, I absolutely, I was biting, I was absolutely loving it, watching the suite, watching 
watching all these amazing glam rock bands because, as I said, we've been on in '72 or so, and just thinking they were absolutely amazing. David Bowie as well, um, you know, and I, I had to. Uh, I said, and then as we went on, and later uh, punk rock arrived, and things got even better. So you know, uh, I I think I grew up in exactly the right time. Uh, early 70s through to mid 70s through to late 70s was an amazing time in music and then the early 80s when I got to express myself if you like uh, was uh, an even, just as an exciting time uh, all those areas whereby we had musical revolutions where suddenly everything changed you know very exciting it hasn't happened for a long time now but in the, the 70s well, 60s, 70s and 80s, it really was a time of constant change and it was a very exciting time to be a musician. So when did you sort of pick up a guitar? And, and the other thing which was quite mind-blowing is, is singing, because, you know, I find, well, I do now, but I did back then quite terrifying because at school they were really big on making us sing hymns. And if you weren't very good, the teacher didn't mess around, said, right, you're rubbish, get to the back, no one wants to hear your voice. So you just think, oh, crikey, OK, I'll... I've lost it at the age of eight. So, I mean, when did you start to think, actually, I'm quite a singer? Were you in the choir? <laughs> I was actually asked to be in the choir and I deliberately scuppered my chances by singing out of tune. Uh, they should have detected that I knew how to sing out of tune so well. Uh, maybe I'm blowing my own trumpet here. But uh, no, I, I formed a band at, at school and... Um, and it wasn't so much, it's not so much singing. I All my heroes were people who weren't natural singers, you know, Lou Reed and, and Bob Dylan and, and all the punk stuff, you know. They weren't natural singers. They were people who, who delivered a message and they would often do it with a certain growl or a certain kind of vocal delivery that wasn't an obvious thing. You know, take it away from nowadays, we have that kind of X factor delivery, which is this rather sort of manicured vocal sound. When I was growing up, the whole point of being a singer was less about being a, a perfect uh, tone, perfect singer, it was about delivering a message and doing it in such a way that you had balls, or at least you had some elements of a uh, way of delivering something that was so exciting that uh, you'd forget about whether the guy could sing or not. It was just a case of this. Um, David Bowie, uh, even, was, while he was a great singer, in some of those songs, he didn't need to sing so much as just deliver this extraordinary message, you know. And yes. That, for me, was, was more about uh, what it was to be a singer. Well, I know a lot of people often, you know, even you know, talking about guitar players like Neil Young, say oh, they weren't very good. But it's like, yeah, but what they did was incredible. And I suppose with the voice, it's the same. It's like, it's distinctive. You know, I mean, I know a few people who lead choirs in this area. And, and to be honest, I kind of, many years ago, thought, I never heard them actually sing on their own. And I'm sure they're very good. But there's probably nothing that's very distinctive. Whereas, like you said, Dylan, you know, Lou Reed, David Bowie, Mick Jagger, you know, Johnny Rotten. They, they was like... You just hear that, oh, yes, that's them, or, you know, and, and Joni Mitchell and Carol King. You know, they, there was probably something that was very distinctive, Janis Joplin, again. You know, the voice is such a distinctive uh, um, instrument, isn't it, really? So it is quite an interesting one. But at the same time, it does take a lot to get up there and sing. But then I guess if you were into punk, you begin to get that attitude, which is quite essential for the front man or woman. Of course. Uh... I mean, I was I was 
just uh, young enough to experience punk and but of course my, my real uh, opportunity to uh, express myself was in the 80s um, but I think it was a reaction against uh, being a great singer as opposed to being somebody who could belt it out and uh, well you know I, I thought some of those uh, you know some of the 70s singers uh, were great but I, I often listened to the message they had to sing rather than the actual tone uh, and the beauty of the voice. Um, and I think that's often, uh, that's very much what inspired me. And that's what I really liked about uh, singers. But going to the, the to the early eighties, which we love so much, you know, that was the sort of the Falkland crisis that had been in since 79. And um, at that point, unemployment was huge, you know, when people were doing you know, the enterprise allowance schemes and uh, job seekers allowance. So, you know, there was that scheme where, you could sign on for a year, couldn't you, and be a sort of self-employed something, and the government would say, brilliant, we'll take you off the books on that front and just give you the money, and you can do, put anything you want. Do You know, you can be a paper maker, you can be an artist, you can just do anything, as long as you've got a £1,000 in your bank account, which mysteriously appears, no one asked the question. So that gave a lot of people the opportunity to go, oh, I'll be a musician in the band, and we can, oh, great, we can take drugs and drink and, and make a noise, which is great. You know, it gives you, it keeps everyone that one year of, sort of um, happy satisfaction because it wasn't that thing of god I must go to do my this course and that course and end up with an MBA it was like great that, that will kill one more year before we all die in that kind of miserable <laughs> way that we were in the 80s that we we look back with great golden times but what was your sort of you know what were you doing in the early 80s because because the Inca babies are from Manchester aren't they yeah, well, I, um, it was an opportunity. I actually um, always wanted to go to university. Um, and the reason I wanted to go to university was because I wanted to meet uh, more people. Because I was living in, in Shrewsbury at the time, which was uh, a lovely little town. Uh, but there wasn't much um, opportunity to really meet a lot of musicians. And so, of course, I immediately went to Manchester uh, uh, to the Polytechnic uh, in 1981, it would have been. God, young and, people wouldn't know what that even means now, would they? Polytechnic. Well, it's Manchester Metropolitan University now, but at the time it was a Polytechnic, which was basically a university, uh, just that um, they had this sort of... Um, tier system where a, a polytechnic was considered less than a university but actually we know it was just as good uh, and I went to the polytechnic and of which there were hundreds of people all just like me all wanted to be in the bands all into the bands I was into the cramps the gun club the birthday party magazine the buzzcocks joy division all of these bands and uh, I just was falling over these people and I wanted to form a band and it was just a great time. And I did, um, uh, I did just that. Uh, went uh, around, and it was the it was the greatest opportunity of my life. And I'm really glad I did it. And I'm still in Manchester, uh, even though um, I was planning to actually move back down south uh, once I'd finished my degree. But uh, we got given a record deal. We got given tours, and so my base became in Manchester. Uh, then I got a job with the BBC later on. So, you know, um, anyway, I love Manchester. Manchester, so as, as, as Morrissey, the, Morrissey and the Smiths said in, I think, one of their first albums, so much to answer for, as they said. So look, 80, so I've got, I know you weren't sort of indie pop, but I've had put indie pop between the years of 83 to 87, which is the mm. years of the Smiths, because there was a sort of a moment where you thought, oh, there is a, in a sloppy way that journalists and various people like myself do. You know, you like, you know, you, you've got that sort of, 
punk, post-punk, and then you, you know, nice, clean. well, you know, it's like decades, you know, the 60s aren't really the 60s from 60 to 70, isn't it? Like, the 60s are more like 63 to 71 or 72, you know, and the 70s only start a few years into the decade. I mean, and I think, uh, yeah, the indie world was kind of definitely a moment where you had the Smiths who'd taken the baton from people like Echo and the Bunnymen who'd slightly started to, to sort of waver, not a lot, but suddenly the Smiths came along and it was like, God, this is really happening and you guys are slightly taking probably too many drugs um, and you're off the ball a bit, really. So, you know, off the bat and goes, because you only have that, timing is everything in music, isn't it? It's kind of, you, you know, because I was talking to Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness and he said, we were two years too early for punk. We were there mm. in 75 and all these people came to see us who then became punk band into punk bands and, and and not cleaned up, but certainly appeared. And he was like, oh shit, we're a bit old at 25, 26. We've been doing it for too long. Yeah. You know, we've kind yeah. of missed that boat. So so timing is everything. But again, there was a very, you know, for the indie world, and I remember sort of, that's when I started to get into the John Peel show and the, you know, listen, getting the NME on a Wednesday. So you were definitely there at a very good time, weren't you? Because the band formed in 82. Oh, I cannot tell you how, Timing is absolutely essential. Um, I believe I've, I've since I've I've made some wonderful things that were just wrong, uh, the right time, uh, the wrong at the right time, the right rhyme wrong. So uh, yeah, timing is perfect. And the Inca Babies in 1982-83 just were at the, exactly the right time. It was a time when um, there was. Um, just a, a sense of dark rock. There was uh, there was bands coming out of Australia from America, and there was this sense of a kind of a, a death rock. The cramps were were huge. There was a sense of we wanted a British band that was like this, like this kind of death rock. There the, the, the was a Bertie party. There was a Gun Club. There was a cramps, all sort of from other places, and we. And a number of other bands just came up with this. As, it was called Death Rock later. I mean, I don't know what that means, but and, <laughs> and it was literally just at the right time. And uh, John Peel picked it up. John Peel loved it. Um, our record label uh, grabbed our demo and immediately wanted to put it out. Um, we were immediately given a, a publishing deal. Uh, an agency wanted to sign, and all happened within a, a few months. Uh, so the timing must have been absolutely spot on, because that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. That you just hit um, the right time. You literally, the planets were aligned. I was going to say. say the planets were there, weren't they, boy? But you were you based in the famous kind of ghetto of whom? We well, uh, this is it. It shouldn't have happened because. Um, Manchester is a very um, un—it's not a rock and roll city. It's—it's it's more of a kind of a northern soul city. It's more of a dance, more of a funk, jazz funk. It's a soul city. Uh, the rock bands that come out of Manchester, like say the the Buzzcocks, they were basically northern soul playing pop music, but in a punk style. Uh, the Stone Roses became a dance band. Uh, the Happy Mondays, again, they were like a they were a, a, a dance band, but from a council estate. Yeah. Uh, New Order, they once were a goth band, but a goth band that turned into a disco band. You know, <laughs> all of the uh, Manchester music seems to veer eventually towards a dance music kind of northern soul ideal. And this is very much what uh, 
why we didn't really fit in because we were never ever going to be a dance band. We basically wanted to be this this ball to the floor uh, rock band, death rock, if you like. And uh, we wanted big black hair and leather jackets, wearing black, and we wanted to be motorcycle heroes. And it's completely antithesis uh, to what Manchester uh, basically was used to. And so we didn't really fit in. So we were very lucky to actually uh, have that moment whereby we could be this band. Uh, consequently, as times went on, we were we were we were soon. Uh, how should we say, left behind because, of course, things uh, moved on so quickly. Yes, but interesting enough, because Manchester did have some great bands coming out of those kind Absolutely. of the, the, the dark, shadowy areas. And obviously there were three bands in the 80s that sort of really shaped a certain sound. There was kind of Big Flame, Bogshed and Stump, and obviously Big Flame comes yes. from Manchester and, and the sort of ghetto, because I've interviewed one of the members who's now in Belfast, I can't remember his name, but you know, um, he's a professor, bizarrely, but he lived yes. in that, he, he lived in that area and he said he, they came back one night and the flat had, was empty, everything in it had been stolen, you know, so, you know, you kind of got the impression, you got the idea that Manchester at that stage was a very grim place, it was still to find it's kind of like, Universities weren't, you know, were able it, towards the later part of the latter part of the decade, saying, "Come to Manchester, come here's the hacienda, take drugs, kids." Get yeah. At the same time, if you have to, but don't worry, you know, we're going to dance. You know, you're going to dance for three years, and it'll be great. But well, then, I, I was going to say that, but there was, you know, Cherry Red Records, who loves a good compilation. They did a few years ago. They did one on. Uh, on Liverpool, that was five CDs and, and it had hundreds of sound songs. But Manchester, they did seven a CD. And, and a lot of it is kind of awkward indie pop, wasn't it? You know, when, you know, there were bands like the Bodines, Easter House, Meow. Obviously, you had A Witness as well and, and lots of sort of tools you can trust. And you were there alongside, but then you had Section 25 as well who would dance. So it was kind of, it, it, what's quite boggling, okay, I'm from Norwich. There you go, a fine city. Not the greatest <laughs> musical city. You know, we had the Farmers Boys, Higgs and Serious Drinking. Cherry Red Records aren't going to put out too many compilations of the 80s <laughs> indie scene, are they? Well, you've got seven CD box sets and, you know, Liverpool have got five CD box sets. So there is something happening there, isn't there? And then, you know, Bob, you know, Morrissey and Mara just around the corner in 83, about to launch into the world and sell 100,000 copies of, el you know, albums and singles mm -hmm. and change the face of music. Statement, um, but you know, but you get that feeling of envy when you're not in Manchester. Oh no, no, I mean, I've, I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, it wasn't an absolute uh, privilege and a luxury to be in Manchester. And there was loads of things going on, um, but I did get the feeling that ultimately um, Manchester is a, a city that likes dance music. He likes dance music more than uh, a lot of uh, the little areas of uh, indie music that came up. There's never been a Manchester heavy metal band, as far as I know. You know, uh, it, it, it seems to have been shunned. I mean, I hope someone proves me wrong there. Yes. But, you know, this, these kind of areas don't yes. uh, don't um, appeal to Mancunians. There's been there's been punk bands, uh, but they've been tinted with northern soul. There's been goth bands that then turn into disco bands. There's been uh, rock bands that then turn into this kind of shuffly kind of dance bands. There's you know if you sort of mean it all. It's like a pendulum. 
that goes from the rock to punk and eventually the pendulum stops swinging and it goes to dance music in the middle, which is yeah. fine. You know, um, that's the way Manchester is. Um, and uh, I could never change it. The Smiths, interestingly, split up before they could become a dance band. But uh, maybe I'm reading too much into that. Well, I think I think from hearing, you know, various things that happened with the Smiths, I think on the tour bus, Johnny liked to play, you know, quite a lot of disco kind of stuff, which he did. some people <laughs> didn't always go for. But as you know, you know, the 80s is a sort of, we look back with great nostalgia and, and realise it, you know, was grim, but there was great music. And, um, and also what the other thing what, that happened is that you get these gatekeepers, don't you? And we, we've mentioned him already, John Peel. So, you know, with a lot of bands, they have that five-year narrative. They get together, they think, oh, this is quite fun. And, you know, with bands like Big Flame, I remember the guy saying that um, they weren't great musicians, so they're going to make a bit of an odd noise. And people like John Peel go, that's an odd noise. We love that. We'll play you on the show, get you a session. You know, you get those dates around the country because every town and city had an indie alternative night, as you like to we all like to think we were slightly alternative when you're younger. So you kind of get those phone calls that you, you know, for a band to sort of just drive around the country and you can go to the George Roby or the Norwich Arts Centre or, I don't know, the Princess Charlotte in Leicester, the Duke of York in Leeds. So, you know, there is that organic network within the John Peel, the NME. So it does give people that, oh, Jesus, I, you know, even though you've got to go to a phone box with two P pieces, you can find yourself <laughs> going up to Glasgow going, fuck, we're playing in front of complete strangers. Because in the past, and I think now a little bit, people are a bit stuck just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to go and see them. But then, you know, you can play in front of strangers, you know, pasty-faced kids who like myself. So it must have felt also kind of like, oh, this is very, this is how it works. I know it's it's uh, we again we're very lucky we 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 got to play in all those places uh, and uh, before uh, social media literally if you could get the music papers and the radio to play you that was your best bet otherwise you would literally have a scene which would be in your village or in your town <laughs> and you would never be able to break out of it. Uh, um, you know, we, okay, because we were in Manchester, there was a sense of oh, something happening in Manchester. John Peel liked us, and the enemy and the sounds and Melody Maker would do uh, reviews and interview us. And because in those days, people bought those magazines, you know, they were uh, the, the music press in those days was incredibly powerful, yeah. as was uh, John Peel. Uh, we don't kind of have that so much nowadays. If you want to really be successful, you have to um, work out a way of using your socials, uh, your social media to such an extent that you uh, have to explode onto the scene. I don't know how it's done, honestly. Uh, a lot of it's luck. I imagine there's so much stuff out there we don't hear about because um, yes, that's the way. So when, when you started to sort of form, it's obviously, in, <clears throat> I remember talking to quite a few people who, in, you know, you mentioned heavy metal. I did an interview with Fast Eddie. I mean, it took Motorhead a few years before they made a sound that was like, ah, oh, okay. They were just about to say, look, this is going nowhere fast. We're still completely penniless. And then they, I think they played some more shows at the marquee. And then someone said, okay, you know, I think, I think this is kind of going somewhere now. And then suddenly it's like, okay, we've got the sound. So obviously, you know, you, you, did you have a similar experience of thinking 
still not quite there lads and then suddenly one day think actually this is kind of good because you did have a lot of the, you know, like the meteors and king kurt and the stingrays as well so it was a bit of a, a thing going on and, and everyone loves the cramps don't they a date with elvis so um so yeah so did it did it start to feel like you were starting to, to move into a direction that was something a bit more special very much so. We were very lucky to uh, uh, our drummer at the time was, was a guy called Alan Brown, who was who, who formed Big Flame a little later on. And we were in the rehearsal room and I just came up with a riff and it was like the sort of rather grounding kind of uh, sort of crampsy kind of riff. And he goes, that's the single. And because Alan is such a genius, uh, he was absolutely right. And we, we, we this was the single that we managed to get. Um, uh, Red Rhino, as it was, who had distributed, say yes, yes, we'll pay for everything that you do from now on. Uh, and it was, it was literally just uh, one of those things that happened where we suddenly believed in ourselves. And because we all agreed that we thought this was great, uh, there was this driving force uh, that uh, made us all actually work that much harder. So suddenly we had a purpose, and uh, again we were, we were, you know, we were twenty-one, I think, twenty twenty-one, and at that age you have this incredible uh, sense of enthusiasm and uh, importance, and also I think you really want to believe it, and it was perfect for us. Again, you know, the planets were aligned. We were twenty twenty-one, which is the perfect age to form a rock band. Yes. So it all came neatly together, and because we believed it um it happened um i mean i know i would say there's a lot of luck involved there but we just managed to get the right elements all in the right time and uh, for our small and uh, i wouldn't say a hugely successful career <laughs> not by a long shot but at the same time an important for us and uh, it was it was it was a bit of luck, but a bit of skill from us. Yes. Well, also, I mean, everyone, you know, I don't know. I did an interview with Kevin Cummings. He did uh, just bought a book out. He he went to that gig of the Sex Pistols on Christmas Day, 1976, and took a lot of film. And obviously, it was like, what the hell are you doing going to see the Sex Pistols on Christmas Day in Huddersfield? But he, you know, as he said, you know, it, it is luck, but it isn't luck. You know, he did it. No one else was doing it. And you know, that's that's what happens, isn't it? You know, suddenly, you know, and then he did Joy Division, and again you know, God, that was lucky. It's like, well, yeah, if, if it was that lucky, I wouldn't have been the only one doing Sex Pistols and going, blimey, mm -hmm. you know, and now I've got this new book out on the Sex Pistols and you look and you think, God, that's brilliant. I'm so pleased because there's so little footage. So there is kind of luck, but, you, you know, like in football, you have to have about 20 shots in the, at the goal to get one in the back of the net, really, don't you? And that can, <laughs> that can look like a scuffed shot that got, you know, a bit of a you know, I don't know, deflection from the defender's heel, but, you know, at the same time, you think, well, I've, you know, I've had 19 shots that haven't gone in. But talking of Alan Brown of Big Flame, it was Greg from Big Flame I, in, I interviewed, actually, I just realised. So they were quite the moves and shakers and darlings of John Peel. So how was Alan working with you and Big Flame at the same time? Uh, well, we lifted the Hume and um, Alan was actually a very good friend. He was on the same course as uh, Bill, the bass player. 
Uh, I think they were both doing something like geography and Marxist science or Marxist politics and geography or something like that. Oh, that you did in those days. <laughs> and um, uh, so, yeah, so I, I said to Bill, who was already in the band, because I, I immediately wanted to be in them. I said, we need a drummer. And he said, oh, I know a friend of mine, Alan, who can play drums, uh, although he's actually a bass player. And I said, fine, bring him on. Anyway, he was a natural. And um, interestingly, uh, Big Flame are one of those extraordinary bands uh, of which, um, the like of which uh, seems to very rarely come up. Something that's impenetrable and yet at the same time utterly marvellous. And it's very difficult to know why they're marvellous because they're so impenetrable. And um, Every now and again, I, I listen back to a, a big fame record, which luckily I, I, I have them because Alan would give me them as with Dill or, or Greg. And they're very difficult listens, but at the same time, they are utterly gripping. And nowadays, you couldn't possibly make music like that because it would not have uh, an audience that would be prepared to, one, listen to it, and to accept it as something that was uh, valuable, valid, and important, yeah. because it was just too avant-garde. And uh, that's why I love Big Flame, that's why I love Alan. And well, to yeah. have him in the Incas just for that short period of time before he went on and obviously did big things with uh, Big Flame, uh, was absolutely wonderful because he really did have a great sense of how to drive a band forward. So I'm in, uh, completely indebted to, uh, to Alan Brown. Yes, well, I, I sort of realise why pop stars can't dance is, is a classic. But I think with that band, and it was Greg, who was become a professor in Belfast, it all comes back to me now. Um, <laughs> I think it was the Captain Beefheart kind of, that's where John Peel, if he sort of thought, oh, that's, you know, I'm, I bet they've got a Captain Beefheart track mask replica album that they've consumed and are sort of got that. There's no, there's no worry about the click track, is there? The drummer's not having to sort of, you know, the producer isn't getting too worried about the click track on those kind of albums, yes. you know, which is kind of, um, which is often destroys a lot of drummers and their confidence even 30 years later I've spoke to. It can do, yeah. It can. So look, with most bands, they have that kind of five-year narrative, which is the get-together, John Peel session, play John Peel session, first album, tricky second album. And if anybody ever does America, it finishes them off. You managed to survive a little bit longer than the five years, but not much. So how was your narrative of the, that, that period? Uh, we uh, played a lot in Europe. And because we were in Europe, as in continent Europe, in Germany, Holland, um, uh, France, uh, Austria, et cetera, et cetera, Scandinavia, uh, we lost a lot of our um, audience in the UK. And um, we kept going and uh, doing these tours and releasing albums. By about 1988, though, Acid House happened and dance culture happened. Again, you know, it's all about dance. And Manchester was completely uh, enthralled into this uh, scene, quite rightly, too, because it was an amazing thing that was happening. And literally, a, a, a rock band like us was completely redundant. And um, while we formed another band and tried to uh, do something interesting, it was clearly not going to um, engage a lot of people because literally Manchester had embraced uh, this kind of uh, dance music. And again, we talked about revolutions, about new music, and it was such a big thing that happened um, in 1988, uh, the Acid House and a whole rave thing that uh, took off. 
um, that, um, that we were powerless to um, compete with it. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because it's because with a lot of the bands that I've loved, you know, I realised at 87, the Smiths break up, the party feels a bit like it's over. And then, you know, all those bands like the June Brides, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No, you know, they were starting to flag, weren't they, Mighty Lemon Drops, you know, even though they might not have split, split up, they, they were getting, you know, a, a problem of, A, their fans were sort of thinking, God, you know, we're, we're sort of needing to focus on other domestic things in our personal lives, and we can't just be obsessed with the next album and the next tour that you're doing. And like you said, the, the ecstasy world came along, which kind of, kind of knocks out a lot of people because they, they, you know, like a lot of people have said that, you know, no one was really that interested. The music papers had slightly gone, well, you know, it's the Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, the Soup Dragons had made the leap from indie to dance, didn't they? And uh, yeah, mm. it was it was just all happening. Primal Scream was the other band who managed to do it. And a guy called Gerald, whoever he was, we loved him really. But yeah, so yes, you're right. It, it was like, oh my God, we've just gone to the party and everyone's gone quiet. Like, who are those old people with guitars? Yeah. Music. Yes. So did you, I mean, because you did four, you did four albums, didn't you, as, as the Inca Babies, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, four albums um, over a period of four years, I think. No, not four years, uh, over a period of five years, yeah. And uh, we put them all out. Uh, and we had a, a German record label who uh, wanted this material, and we, we uh, were eager to put it out and um, we were getting tours and we were playing all around Germany and as I say all those other countries in Europe. Uh, never quite got to America. We were very lucky our, our, our promoter who was uh, about to take us over to America was killed in a freak accident uh, and so that never really happened. So that was a, a great show. Her name was Ruth Polsky. There's a very interesting story. If you ever look it up, uh, she was an amazing, uh, but she took a, a certain ratio over to America and she took uh, various other bands over from Manchester. Uh, but unfortunately she was killed in a, in a, a freak uh, accident, uh, queuing outside a, a club. So we, we never got to go over and God rest her. Uh, she was a wonderful person. We, we met her uh, when she came over to Manchester to say hello to us. Easy, um, easy. So we never went to America, but um, later on uh, in 2010, uh, when we reformed in 2007, I actually got a gig for us in LA and we went over to LA and we played on, uh, where did we play? Uh, oh, uh, uh, we played in Sunset Boulevard, of course we did, uh, in a place just down the road from the House of Blues. The House of Blues, thank you, <laughs> just down the road from the House of Blues. And it was great. It was really good. And that was our moments where we got to play L.A. Um, we haven't been did Le- And was Lemmy there then? Because he, he went and lived in L.A., didn't he? And some... He did. Lemmy, uh, everyone talks about Lemmy. Uh, he was actually not there at the time, unfortunately. He was, he was on tour. But, uh, yes, uh, people, uh, there were photographs of Lemmy uh, in the record shops. And, you know, people, it was like the derogatory, uh, sorry, derogatory, the dirigar shot was to have me and Lemmy shot, uh, you know. 20 years earlier, it would have been me and Keith, but uh, in LA, it was me and Lemmy. And uh, sadly, Lemmy wasn't there, but uh, if it had been there, I would have... So what happened? Did you have a moment with the band where you all got together or just said, look, as as Jim Morrison said, this is the end, you know, we've we've kind of had it. Did everyone feel a little bit burnt out? Because I know from speaking to various people from the 60s, not necessarily musicians, but people who were on the scene, like Barry Miles, and I, I remember asking them, 
what what happened? You know, you were there so much on the counterculture, and he said, "Oh, we were just all really tired. We're taking too many drugs. We were knackered. We were burnt out." And the next decade come, and we just felt we weren't kind of part of it anymore. So we just wanted to, you know, like a lot of people, like the fans, sometimes kind of move on and and get a house together and and their life. So did you have a similar kind of moment with the rest of the band at that stage? Uh, what basically what happened is, is that everyone left. The only people left were me and Bill, the bass player. So we we, we had this this core of a guitarist and a guitarist singer and a bass player, uh, but uh, the other guitarists and the drummers had all gone and uh, had had lost interest in it. But me and Bill absolutely were totally focused and wanted to keep going. So we formed another band and uh we were we were kept going we kept going and going, going till um uh, 1995 uh we were still going and the only reason we stopped in 1995 was because i got a i got a job which i had to uh totally commit myself to and and a, and a small child as well so i kind of had to move on a bit uh, and then I got back into it later on um, but yeah no totally focused uh, in the music uh, after the Incas um, but eventually jobs family children um, rather so, the B- so the BBC was your sort of like da, 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 da. Yeah, I got. I I've always wanted to be. Uh, I always loved radio, and I always I I had this sort of desire to be John Peel at some stage. But of course, that's never going to happen. But uh, I did do a, a local um, on BBC Radio Manchester. I did a late night program that I totally fashioned on a like a John Peel program. It was called Meltdown. And I started off as uh, the production assistant, then I became the producer, then I became the presenter. And then just as I was about to take over the world, they pulled it and I had to do an arts program instead. Uh, But hey, you know, then I went on and and did uh, work at the BBC for 10 years, uh, working for all kinds of uh, different areas of radio, basically, and a bit of TV. but yeah, no, it was it was a good it was a good um, few years for me. It's yeah. a good thing to do. But you've often, you know, the band have come back and done, you know, the occasional performance, hasn't it? So it's never left your DNA, has it? No, no, we 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 did actually not play for nineteen years. Then we reformed in two thousand and seven. Uh, myself and Bill thought, right, this is it. We've had enough. We're going to play because our uh, German uh, promoter said, look, uh, it's the 20th, 20, was it the 20th? Yes, the uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, their um, um, agency, which is called IBD, which called IBD stood for International Booking Agency, but it also stood for Inca Babies Dots, which were the first two bands she um, signed up. So she took us over to Munich and we played a gig. And after that, we got more and more gigs and we just kept going on and uh, after, uh we just wanted to keep playing honestly. yes and, and the uh, so we have to only a few a year but um <clears throat> since 2007 to now we've probably played about 65 gigs yes. uh all very prestigious as i'm sure you can imagine well everybody from from you know fish from marillion and to the godfathers to lemmy always said it was the german market that would keep them going and if if it wasn't for them it would have been just like Back in shelves. 
on the night shift, it would have been disaster. So yes, obviously this is kind of the, the most Im important and everyone talks about how well you kept the fact that they give you, you know, a good rider, a bed for the night, everything, you know, so. They totally understand our sensibilities and also the audiences uh, were great. They, you know, they actually uh, engaged and understood what we did, I hope, and um, bought the records what can I say? I'm yeah. indebted to their enthusiasm. I remember a few years ago interviewing a member of a band whose lead singer had died, but they reformed with a new lead singer. I know this isn't a great conversation now, but I'm sure that you were playing dates with this particular band. He died of a heroin overdose and, um, you know, and the rest of the band had sort of got together. Does that ring a bell? You mean the folk devils? The folk devils. God. Yes. Oh. No, we did. We did play the folk <clears throat> devils. Yes. Um, um, Ian Lowry was was the uh, original singer of the folk devils, who, funny enough, I met in 1979 in Derby and, and spoke to him backstage when he was playing with his band, The Wall. Uh, sadly, I wish he had been alive, uh, however many uh 40 years later it probably would have been and we'd have had a nice chat i can remember that but yes no um the folk devils we played um uh, a couple of tours with them and a terrific band but yeah sadly ian larry um uh, you'd have thought that uh, they couldn't uh, reform without the main man but actually they're they were pretty damn good i have to say because the 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 bass player guitarist and guitarist uh, were totally committed and uh, wanted to bring it back. And uh, it was good. It was good. We, we had a good time with that. Yeah, yes. it was an interesting scenario, yeah. It was, yes, Christ. Yeah, because I think, yeah, things weren't going even well for the members, or especially the guy I interviewed who, um, who's still alive, because I think, he, yeah, that wasn't good. Was it too many hard drugs? Did you, did you yourself kind of managed to slightly keep a sensibility or a togetherness on that kind of murky. Because when we were growing up, remember when bands were being interviewed, they always said, well, I got into music for sex, drugs and rock and roll. I think suddenly someone said, don't say that anymore. Don't, we should, you know, it's not a good thing. It was, it was the seventies and sixties. I mean, did you manage to sort of like go, oh, blimey, that was lucky. I said no to it. You know, uh, I, when I was uh, in Manchester, when I first arrived in Manchester, I. Uh, I was working for uh, promoters like uh, Alan Wise and um, Phil Jones and uh, New Hormones Records. And I used to go around and uh, help them out with the uh, kids. And I was starting to meet people and you go backstage because you were kind of helping out. And there'd be people there, heroin addicts um, shooting up and also. And it absolutely appalled me because I suppose I'm, I'm this rather sort of middle-class kid, uh, not remotely interested in uh, in that kind of druggy kind of thing. I was um, I always thought it uh, you you it, it was going to hold you back, and uh, so I was never really interested in that. Um, and having seen it uh, firsthand, I mean, sadly there was uh, uh, I remember a June, John Cooper Clark gig. Uh, sorry, no, it was, it was a Johnny and the Thunders gig we played and John Cooper Clark turned up and they all got together in this kind of druggy kind of horrible uh, gathering in the backstage of the Hacienda. It was awful. Uh, it just felt like sort of like, uh, like the exhaust of broken dreams had just leaked into this room. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so I was I was not interested. I it didn't get me. Um 
And what a lot of people were taking speed, a lot of people uh, took drugs, but uh, I wasn't, um, I don't know, it didn't appeal to me. And I, um, you know, I have no uh, answer to that apart from the fact that um, it seems to be a bit squalid somehow. Yes, no, I, I, <laughs> so, I, I mean, the word. Sounding very middle class here. It's, oh, yes, well, it's fine, but it's sometimes, you know, you, there are times when you know when you're young and you see something and it's like oh god actually that looks a bit tragic or looks a bit seedy or that's not going to be you know some things look like fun you know drinking seemed to be fun because you were giggling and you fell over and you got up again whereas some things yeah. just felt like that's not even when you're young just like yeah that's not going to end well and yeah anyway look that brings us to the new album because actually yes. what's what's interesting gothic urban blues um which is so why why Call it Harry Stanford and not the Inca Babies. I mean, what that? I mean, I'm sure. Uh, well, the idea of uh, is, is Harry Stafford, guitar-shaped hammers, uh, which is what we decided to call the band. And the idea was, um, it's it's basically me playing, playing piano. About five years ago, I decided I was going to uh, reinvent myself as this kind of. Uh, I wanted to experiment with barroom blues and I wanted to try out and uh, various other sort of telling stories and sort of a Tom Waits kind of approach and, and just a way of doing different music that wasn't involved a, a guitar. So I thought, right, I'm not going to play the guitar for uh, five years. I'm just going to play the piano and see what happens uh, with differing uh, effects and differing results, but um, it, it got the first album out and the second album, Gothic Urban Blues, was a, uh, a, a natural transition, which um, is more of a, a, a proper album than the first. The first one was an experimental album. This one was, was absolutely planned, 10 tracks, a narrative through it, uh, a, um, um, what should we say, a, a cover that looks exactly how it should do, and uh, shall I just see if I can find a copy somewhere? Yes. Just you know, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> well, yes, you know, a copy. The idea was that it should look like uh, a record, you know, like a, oh, of course it's backwards, isn't it? But that's uh, um, oh, good. But um, the idea was there's me in the middle and it's fat, so it's gothic urban blues. Harry Stafford and Katasha Hammers. 10 tracks all telling a story on the other side and basically me standing in Manchester and talking about Manchester as a city that has uh, there are uh, a thousand stories in the naked city and here are 10 of them and uh, it was just something I wanted to say because having lived in Manchester for oh gosh a long time now uh, nearly 40 years um, when I arrived in 81 it was a slum Absolutely yes. appalling uh, city. It was just uh, broken down. Everything was uh, covered in soot. There was nothing going on really. The the, the clubs were strip clubs and um, the, uh, casinos, and it was utterly squalid and grubby. The few live venues uh, had to be established were being constantly closed down because the, the police force were this, this neo-fascist James Anderton kind of hunter that wouldn't allow any live music so they would go from one stage to the other eventually that uh, passed and come the 80s it suddenly started to blossom and the gothic urban blues is about coming 
out of that awful 70s malaise into this very exciting time when I arrived, uh, eventually arrived, uh, and it was just showing that this, while it was gothic and it was urban and there were blues, it's actually a very positive thing. Yes, and were you, I mean, it sounds like your reading material probably shaped a bit of the kind of the the atmosphere of this particular album as well. I mean, so I just wondered whether there was a writer or a filmmaker that you were particularly interested, or even a painter, you know, like um, The Night Hawks by my favourite artist that I can't now remember. Oh, yeah. Um, but you know that paint, that amazing painting from 1920, where you've got those soul, you know, those individual characters at the, at the sort of in the diner, all looking just very sort of lost, but kind of beautiful at the same time. I mean, I know, Hopper is as uh, well as extraordinary uh, painters, you know, where just the moment in time that's captured, and because there's so much space, you can read in all of this uh, incredible uh, uh, narrative that's yes. going on there. Oh, yeah, I wanted to be. Like that, I yeah. wanted to be at that bar. I wanted to sort of superimpose myself and put it at the bar because I just love that painting so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, there's there's endless uh, things like that um, that uh, I experienced uh, from going to uh, and watching it develop. Like it's it's about architecture. It's about um, the. The streets, the, we used to have orange double-decker buses. I don't know why that was. Um, I say we, I'm not, not a Mancunian, but while I was living, I, I felt part of it. There were orange double-decker buses. There were, there were these, these, these buildings that were falling down and uh, developers coming in and, and suddenly there were flats in town. Why would you want to live in Manchester? It's a, it's a factory town. It's yeah. basically full of mills and it's full of things you would want to live there how are you going to buy a bottle of milk if you live in town but sure enough the whole city suddenly developed to this extraordinary uh, metropolis that became you know the idea was to turn it into new york yes. uh, whereby people lived in town i mean that's pushing well, this, it a bit but it's true i mean you know I, I don't know if it's like norwich or the other cities or towns you've been in but you know now it's, you know, it's um, coffee shops and hairdressers and tattooists. And you think, you know, and now with this particular year, you just wonder what's going to happen to the high street, because obviously we buy and we have probably for the last three months bought everything online and went, actually, that's great. But you still need to get a haircut or tattoo or go and have a coffee, meet a friend, don't you? Because Zoom, yeah. there is a moment where you think Zoom's kind of, I'd kind of like to meet someone in the flesh, really. Yes. You know, in a nice way with your clothes on, but, you know, or not, I don't know. Um, but you know <laughs> what I mean. It's it's going to be, you know, hairdressers going to be open queues. So, yes. But do you feel as an artist then, because I often think, you know, of David Bowie, as we mentioned many minutes ago, you know, every artist, I think, this is my other theory, you have to make your low album to sort of think, wow, that must have been an amazing surprise for everybody and a hell of a, a, a kind of an adventure. Do you sometimes find yourself, you know, do, I just wonder if you ever struggled with that thing of thinking, I am an artist and this is, I'm going to follow my path or I'm going to follow that moves. Because I remember Bowie, I remember people like Neil Young and you've obviously got Dylan, who just, you just thought they were kind of incredible because they were like, major players who just took those risks and I just wondered with your solo work that you also find yourself thinking actually I'm I'm a bit more there's a bit more to me than just the Inca babies you know and, and that scene which I'm happy with but at the same time this is also something else that's kind of stretched you as well 
No, yeah, absolutely. And uh, which is which is where the uh, the soul albums came from. And also, uh, um, I was asked by uh, John Robb of the Membranes if I would play guitar for him, and uh, that was a really very exciting thing, whereby I got to play um, around uh, the UK and actually contribute to uh, their sound, which is very exciting. You know. These sort of uh, things, is, it's always very exciting. And I do like the idea of actually pushing it, stretching it, and looking for different genres to exploit. You know, um, I've, I've been trying to work out a way of introducing dub piano uh, into my songs, you know, or, or maybe I'm trying to introduce some, some kind of strange um, element of of a folk music that uh, is like, um, uh, what's that What's that stuff called? It's like Einstein and Neubaum play folk, but at the same time with this kind of Skrillic kind of uh, dubstep bottom end that's just a nightmare. You know, I'm just always looking out for trying to find different things. That like the scream, there. isn't it? The other painting. But did you, you know, with trying to get your sound, did you find a producer or engineer who could capture what you were looking for? Because that's often something that can be quite difficult if you're, if you're saying, you know, like, record thick air. <laughs> that you hear those classic things, yeah. to beef heart moments. Do you, did you sort of find yourself struggling to get what you wanted or did you have somebody that you thought oh they got what we needed quite quickly you know with modern technology no we we never had a producer unfortunately uh we um would we'd often have to rely on the producer to to hear what we were doing and try and get them to see what we were trying to do it was very hard because there was an element of uh, what we wanted and what we thought we would sound, but we, it was difficult to get that. And um, every now and again, it would, it would happen suddenly. One of the most exciting times we ever spent was when uh, we did our first Peel session and we had Dale Griffin from Mott the Hoople uh, producing it and Mark uh, Radcliffe, uh, who was the engineer. And uh, just by making this rather tinny sound that we were into this massive sound. They, they had this lexicon that was as big as a barn, which is a, an echo unit or a reverb unit. And they put us through it basically. And they just throwing a, a flung us out there. And suddenly we realized, oh my God, this is what elements of production that we have never ever experienced. Our tiny minds cannot possibly comprehend this yes. and uh, we suddenly uh, our minds were collectively blown we thought oh, my god we do need a producer but we couldn't afford one quite honestly so we, we we looked for those kind of sounds and tried to recreate them as often as we could but we were uh, at the mercy of our engineers and the people who were in so charge with, of the with your solo work you've got ding ding archer well, Ding, thankfully, yes. I mean, now we come up there. Uh, Ding, of course, uh, was working with the membranes, so I knew what he was doing with the membranes. Plus, he'd worked with PJ Harvey, and while he didn't get to produce any PJ's Harvey, because PJ Harvey's obviously could pick a producer of her well, choice. It's normally John Parrish, isn't it? Who does? That's right. Yes. Who, who uh, was quite whose CV? Because I've interviewed him as well. He's got an amazing CV of indie stuff. You know, he started like most people in bands yes. and, and did various kind of very tiny little bands, which 
I don't think even appear in his CD because he's probably forgot about them because they only did sort of flexi discs and their albums. So he's the he is kind of he's been with her in that way, capacity virtually all her career. So he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? Really. Absolutely, and uh, you know, there's a working relationship that's uh, that's really worked its magic. I mean, I've never really had a uh, the same producer uh, more than once or twice, uh, but I was certainly asked Ding again because I really like what he did with the Gothic Open Blues, and he seemed to have a, a real sense of what we were trying to achieve, uh, and I hope that's from his times uh, with the Fall and uh, PJ Harvey, and, yes. and, and also his solo art. Um, a A K, um, which was a, a terrific band that he was uh, he was in um, in the early nineties, I think it was late hey, early nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, fantastic. Uh, what was it called? It was called something uh, a cane. <laughs> oh, uh, a r cane. A r yes. I think with a K. Yes, because it's interesting because you you just briefly you just mentioned the membranes and and however much I try to like them because I think they've got some good early stuff. I always find the production was just like God. I really wish they'd remix it and do it again or something. You know, their later album does it definitely sounds much better. But that where they've got some great songs, it just sounds like it's like oh, it hasn't really been given that production quality and. They haven't quite got the balance right, and somehow there is that. There's a classic song which, when I listen to it, is so muddy sounding. I just think, oh, shame. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, budget allowing. I think they had to get the uh, the recording done, and I don't think they really had a huge amount of money to really do it justice. Which is a shame in a way, because if you listen to some of their Peel sessions, um, there's actually a marked contrast. Uh, um, with the actual sound uh, from uh, Made Vale, yes. uh, which of course is a top studio, uh, <laughs> to their recordings. Uh, or they're very different, and it's so different, you almost wonder, um, would they be happy with that? But I don't know. We'll have to ask John about this, because he, he clearly um, uh, would have a lot to say about that. But no, a very interesting point, actually. Yeah, I, in fact, I might well talk to John about it unless I see him. Yes, do. So look, last thing, what would you, because you've, you know, you've, you've done the, the, you know, you've run the course and still on it. I mean, what would you say to an 18 year old self that was, or what would you have said to, you know, if you could have said something to yourself back then that you've learned through the decades that you thought, oh, I would just, just one bit of advice, mate, or two, you know, what would it be that you would have just sort of whispered in someone's ear that you thought, yeah, that, you know, this is just good advice from experience, wisdom, just here it is, kids, you know, a bit like the guy from uh, with Nell and I, you know, the old poacher guy <laughs> said, you need working on boy. And, uh, like, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> I like that guy. Um, so, yes, I just wonder what your, um, yes, what you would have said. Um, I, I think um, what's interesting is that uh, at that age, you totally go with the flow and you are just this force of nature. And I think you have to allow that because I've, I still think that uh, at the age of 20 or so, I was just writing stuff, constantly writing stuff. And I was completely uncharted and I had no sense of direction. And our manager actually allowed me to have this kind of driving force. I think the danger came uh, when about two years after that, when somebody needed to tell me that for God's sake, 
you had something good going here. Stop being a dick and actually get back to focusing what you're good at and don't be too complacent and don't repeat yourself. Um, there is a very real tendency to repeat yourself uh, after you've, you've made three albums and you're just thinking, oh, right, what would, what would I do? What would the Inca babies do here? What would they sound like if you answer this? Whereas what we should have done really is we should have just um, maybe made a, an album with bagpipes or something and just to the hell with it. It was your low, um, that was because, your low well, you still got Brian, Brian Eno in and said, look. We sh if only Brian Eno was available <laughs> and would, would have done it uh, pro bono um, or gratis, whatever the word is, uh, then yes, that would have been fantastic. It's funny enough, I, I interviewed him when he was he was making the, the James album oh, a long right. time ago. Yes. Uh, but um, uh, sadly, it was it was too late to um, produce an Inga Babies album by that stage. Yeah, but it's interesting because when he was doing some of that stuff with Bowie, he said, David, something like, you know, look, it doesn't matter, no one's going to die. It's not like we're doing something that's going to really kill anybody. So let's just have that, you know, let's take a chance, you know, let's just go and for it. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right, yeah. And if you listen to, to Eno and you listen to Bowie and you listen to... Uh, all the artists that they work together, they are prepared to uh, not so much take risks uh, because I think they know what doesn't work. Yes. But the point is they know what does work. So, of course, it sounds very risky and it sounds very on the edge, but actually these are guys who are brilliant musicians and brilliant theorists and also have a, an essential notion of how music can actually work and all the things it can do. It's not a case of just throwing something in a mix and hoping it works, but these are guys who really know their stuff and that's what makes them so exciting. I know, Jesus Christ. But then, you know, you, you know, when you create something that is quite a unique thing, isn't it? And it doesn't matter, right. you know, it's still quite amazing, isn't it? You have that album there, which you just held up and you think, Jesus, you just <laughs> created that. And that is still, you know, as David Byrne said, when you're on the stage, you're not the same as the guy at the bar. You know, you are there, aren't you? And you are the, you know, it's a lot different, you know. So, um, yeah. It's, it's um, brilliant, yeah. It's amazing. But look, Harry, well, thank you ever so much for this. And uh, I'll David, tell, it's been fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell Shona and we'll do our social media magic and stuff like that. And um, get a haircut one day, hopefully, two weeks. To yes, uh, so sooner rather than later, I've... Although, I am. I am going. Fine, actually, I am uh, going. I it is the flock of seagulls. No, it's good. I, I've, I've lost my shape. You see, whereas you seem to still have some, uh, how should we say, elegance in, in your, in your uh, mismanagement. Whereas mine is just going. Ooh. Mm, it is. I think it's the slight, the Alice band of which is the headphones, which is slightly because <laughs> it is kind of like. I, do, I, I can't, again, you know, just on the subject this last bit, but, you know, I couldn't imagine having long hair where you just keep touching it and pushing it out of your face all the day or putting it behind your ears. I just, fucking hell, how do you, you know, going back to your granny, you know, the long hair yes. people, you know, I give them credit because it's a pain in the ass, you know, and just, you know, anyway, metrosexual men worrying about hair, fucking hell. Well, anyway, so yes, very important to us. First world problems. Anyway, look, I'll keep yes. in touch, but thank you, and brilliant album, and thank you ever so much. Yes. Thanks very much, David. We'll, Good to leave, see you. we'll leave the room. Uh and that was me in conversation with Harry Stafford talking about the new album 
Gothic Urban Blues. This has come out on Black Lagoon Records. So go and track it down and um, enjoy, because frankly, it's a masterpiece. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. And also, all these um, shows have been archived, so you can find them in Podcast World, which is, um, and that's available on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, look. Stay safe, have a great week, and um, there'll be more interviews where that came from.